All right. Good evening, everyone. My name is Deja Brock. I am the events and programs coordinator here at the Library Company of Philadelphia. Typically, our fireside chats are hosted by our Director of Public Programs and Research, Dr. Will Fenton. However, he was unable to join us today, so you have me. If you aren't familiar with the Library Company of Philadelphia, we are a research library in America's oldest cultural institution, founded by Benjamin Franklin in 1731. Our fireside chat series are our way of keeping our community alive, especially during these times specifically. We have called upon our researchers, staff, and fellows to help us sustain our community through this weekly seminar series that takes place on Thursdays at 7 p.m. All right, so without further ado, I would like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Fireside Chat, which is the Mysteries of the Lost Colonies and the Iroquois Confederacy with Arwen D. Smallwood. Arwen D. Smallwood is professor and chair of the Department of History and Political Science at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University in Greensboro. He is the author of several books, including The Atlas of African American History and Politics from the Slave Trade to Modern Times and Birdie County and Eastern North Carolina History. His research focuses on the relationships between African Americans, Native Americans, and Europeans in Eastern North Carolina. He has been an Andrew W. Mellon Fellow for the Library Company of Philadelphia and the Historical Society of Pennsylvania. He's held the American Philosophical Society's Library Resident Research Fellowship and the recipient of their Franklin Research Grant, a fellow for the John D. Rockefeller Jr. Library of the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation and Archie K. Davis Fellow of Northern Carolina Society a Joel Williamson Visiting Scholar of Southern Historical Collection, and a Gilder Lehrman Fellow. Arwen, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Well, thank you. Again, it's an honor to have the opportunity to uh, be a part of the podcast sponsored by the Library Company and um, to be able to speak with uh, those who have joined us tonight. So why Mysteries of the Lost Colony and the Iroquois Confederacy? So how do these two things you know, connect? And so I decided to start by just having a simple explanation of why there is this connection between the Lost Colony and the Iroquois Confederacy. Uh, when I started my research uh, a number of years ago, uh, many years ago now, almost 30 years ago, I was interested in a community called Indian Woods, uh, which is in Bertie County, North Carolina and it was a reservation that had been given to the Tuscarora Indians. And although in Pennsylvania and New York, uh, people in Philadelphia and New York are very familiar with the Iroquois Confederacy and very familiar with the Tuscaroras as a part of that Confederacy, uh, their homeland was in North Carolina and many people in North Carolina were not very familiar with the Tuscarora, although they were the nation of Indians that pretty much dominated the state of North Carolina, at least Eastern North Carolina for much of the colonial period. So I read a piece by Elizabeth Coombs called The Tales of the Tuscarora. And that piece basically was a collection of oral interviews with remnants of the Tuscarora who were scattered from North Carolina to the Ramapo Mountains of New Jersey, right through New York State and into Canada. And she had gone and talked with the various uh, peoples and collected these stories. And one of the stories, the very first story, 
was um, actually about their association with the destruction of the lost colony in North Carolina. And as a result of that, how they had blended or mixed uh, with the whites and then also Africans who were brought into the area. Uh, I've had the opportunity to participate in the Iroquois Conference for, you know, Conference on Iroquois Research for quite a few years as well. And through that conference, interacting with other scholars who do work on the Iroquois and on the Iroquois Confederacy, I've learned a great deal about um, other pieces that have come up, particularly by Charles Ray, uh, a, a piece that was written about um, early con uh, the, the Seneca. He had excavated a number of Seneca burial mounds, and they had found an unexplained um, body in the Seneca burial mound which was the body of a young African-American or African female uh, that dated to the 1580s. And uh, that was not really fully explained. And it was uh, Kurt Jordan who wrote uh, a book on the restoration of the Senecas that talked about the Seneca nation and the wampum trade that uh, turned me on or introduced me to that. So without a lot of delay, I'm just trying to give some background as to why I became interested. And the reason is because the Tuscaroras are the only nation of Indians in North Carolina that had claimed to have destroyed the lost colony and had extensive involvement. And so I followed that trail. And again, by going to the library company, the Philosophical Society and a number of other research libraries, I pieced together for you this evening, um, this story that I will tell you about uh, the connections between the Lost Colony and the Iroquois Confederacy. First of all, it's important for you to understand that when we talk about the Iroquois, the Iroquois uh, name was given to uh, the Six Nations or Five Nations by the French, but really they're called the Haudenosaunee people. Um, and so the Haudenosaunee are made up of five nations and with the Tuscarora, six nations the Mohawks who are the keepers of the Eastern door, uh, the uh, Oneidas who sit beside them, the Onondagas who are the keepers of the council fire and sit in the center, the Cayugas who sit west of them, and then the Senecas who are the keepers of the Western door. And then the Tuscaroras were a part of the Iroquois Confederacy uh, and officially rejoined the Confederacy in 1722. Uh, according to many Tuscaroras that were scattered throughout the Eastern Seaboard, they had always been a part of the Confederacy and had always interacted with and traded with the Confederacy. It is clear that they were connected, that all of the Iroquoian people are connected. There's one common origin of the Iroquois people and then they all branch out from that uh, origin. And you have the Cherokees who branched off first then the Tuscaroras who branched off and from the Tuscaroras, the Nottaways of Virginia, and then the Maharans of Northeastern North Carolina. Then you have, of course, the other uh, Iroquoian people, uh, the Hurons and the Wadats and the Senecas, Cayugas, um, Onondagas, Oneidas, Susquehannas, but all the other uh, Iroquois people basically come from this one Iroquoian group. And this one Iroquoian group really originated in the Ohio Valley at the great city of Cahokia. And after some, we're not quite sure, natural disaster or whatnot, the Iroquois people were spread to the east. And the Cherokees, of course, splintered off and moved into um, Tennessee and down the Appalachian Valley. 
the Five Nations moved up into New York State, which would become their homeland. And then the Tuscaroras moved down the Appalachia Valley into Eastern uh, North Carolina and Southeastern Virginia with their kinsmen, the Nottaways and the Baharans. Cherokees, once in Tennessee, Tennessee originally was occupied by the Muskegon people, basically absorbed many of the Muskegon's, you know, Creek people and really become more Creek than Iroquois. Although it's clear linguistically and culturally they are connected to the Iroquois, they separated early and became so involved with the Creek nations that they really developed a culture that was quite different. The Tuscaroras come down out of the Appalachian Mountains following the Roanoke River and the other river systems draining into eastern North Carolina and southeastern Virginia. And then the various groups, the Nottaways, the Maharans, the uh, Tuscaroras, settle themselves along these river systems in eastern North Carolina um, that drain out to the Atlantic Ocean. They move from those upper river systems down into the lower river systems or the systems in central North Carolina and eventually to southern North Carolina, settling along the Tar River as well as the Noose River um, during this particular time period. And then stopping at pretty much the Cape Fear River. So everything pretty much north of the Cape Fear River, which incorporates Raleigh, parts of Greensboro, everything north of the Cape Fear uh, basically was the hunting grounds and the territories territory of the Tuscarora Indians who were um, populating and settling uh, eastern North Carolina. If we were to look at a map and you want to understand something about Iroquois people in terms of culturally, they're like lang they're language groups, like you have French, you have German, you have the English, you have the Dutch. Um, the Iroquois language group is a language group and the Iroquois people were connected. And this map highlights the Iroquois people in the homeland for the Five Nations and then also the Hurons who were north of the Five Nations. And then of course the Tuscaroras, the Maharans uh, and the Nottaways in Eastern North Carolina. In terms of territories, again, uh, generally speaking, uh, the Virginia Indians are bordering, uh, and they are Algonquin Indians, um, bordering them in Virginia, but the Maharans are starting somewhere near south of Richmond, Petersburg, and coming on down into North Carolina. And then the Tuscaroras, of course, from uh, throughout eastern North Carolina, covering you know, all of the major rivers that drain into uh, the Albemarle and Pamlico Sound and into the um, Atlantic. Uh, the uh, neighbors of these nations of the Iroquois or the Tuscaroras who were in Virginia, North Carolina are uh, listed here and you can see them pretty clearly. The Nazmans, the Chowan, you know, the Chesapeake Indians, of course, Pamlico and Roanoke Indians down in southeastern North Carolina and the Noose. But this is basically the layout of the native nations of North Carolina uh, prior to the arrival of Europeans. And of course, again, the expansive nature of the nations in eastern U.S., they were what we call eastern woodland Indian nations. And although the Cherokees um, lost their contacts with the other five nations or other Haudenosaunee people, uh, they were still um, affiliated with them and connected to them. Iroquois are very important to understand because they had a major empire one of the most uh, influential empires in the history of the Western Hemisphere. When we think of uh, the great native empires, the Aztecs, the Incas, uh, the Mayans, uh, the Northwest uh, Pacific Coast Indians, the Iroquois are one of the groups that is there 
as a major um, Indian group. And because of their relationship with the Tuscarora Indians in Eastern North Carolina, um, who were major trading partners um, with the Iroquois, and we find this in some of the uh, Iroquois burial mounds where we have seashells from the outer banks of North Carolina that we'll see that we see there. It's important to understand that they had not only a kinship, uh, you know, or a friendship and a family. They were not only family, and they took husbands and wives from each other's nations, but they certainly traded. And it's important to understand. I'll revisit this again a little later, but. Um, with the trade goods, it's important to understand that seashells was the most prized commodity that the Tuscaroras controlled and that they traded with their kinsmen to the north and also with other Indian nations to their south, the Catabas, the Yamases, the Cherokees, the Creeks. Um, uh, seashells were valued by native people the same way Europeans valued gold and silver and precious stones. And so the Tuscarora's easy access through their river systems to the coast and to the outer banks of North Carolina allowed them to gather seashells that they then um, traded to their kinsmen. And all of the Iroquois and most of the Eastern Indians used seashells to make wampum belts. And wampum belts had great you know, spiritual, financial, and historical significance. Uh, the making of the wampum belts, uh, I equate it with hieroglyphics that if you are able to read which the chiefs and the clan mothers were, you're able to read those wampum belts, you get the full history and chronology of treaties and relationships between uh, not just other Indian nations, but later the Europeans who arrived and began to negotiate and trade with the Iroquois Confederacy. Uh, these are examples of the seashells uh, that, you, that they collected. It's a purplish seashell, and you find them along the coast of uh, North Carolina. And these shells would be polished and made into beads, and then they would be strung together to create wampum belts. And it took a lot of effort, a lot of skill to do it. So the belts meant a great deal to the Iroquois people, to the chiefs, the clan mothers, and all the members of the nation. And the fact that the Tuscarora had access to these shells um, really gave them a special place uh, in the Confederacy. And uh, according to the Coons manuscript and these Tuscaroras that were interviewed, uh, the Tuscarora considered the Fort Knox of the Iroquois Confederacy due to their access to the sea and their um, control of the, the, the trade in seashells, which was valued. So oftentimes when we think of the Iroquois Confederacy and we think of the Iroquois Empire, we don't necessarily realize that it stretched into North Carolina and Virginia and that the Maharans, the Nataways, and the Tuscarora were also a part of that great empire and uh, remained their kinsmen and remained allied with them uh, through the period before the arrival of Europeans, and of course, definitely during the period following the arrival of Europeans. So if you want to understand the lost colony and what happened to the lost colony, now I'm bringing it back, you have to understand the Indian nations, and you have to understand the Indian nations that were, where they were located and where they were in place during the time in which the English and the other Europeans began to make contact with them. If we understand that and then kind of understand the events that unfolded, um, you know, we would have a clearer sense of, you know, what happened to the lost colony and how certain peoples that are scattered throughout the eastern United States may be connected to, um, you know, the Tuscaroras and these people uh, who blended with Indian populations uh, in eastern North Carolina. So. I now uh, say, well, okay, I've laid out for you as quickly as I could the history of the Haudenosaunee, the history of the Iroquois Confederacy and the Iroquois. 
uh, and the, the Tuscarora's relationship with them. So now I have to talk a little bit about, you know, North Carolina and the things that were happening in North Carolina um, before the English arrived, but really led to the situation that was in place in North Carolina when the English arrived. As I've already laid out for you, the Tuscarora and of course the Meharans are affiliated with them and they really kind of seen as one people at one time, uh, dominated Eastern North Carolina pretty much from the coastal regions uh, to, they say, to the mountains, but certainly from the coastal regions into the Piedmont and on the foothills of the Appalachians in North Carolina. Uh, they were um, not, you know, their enemies were to the south, the Catawbas, you know, the, uh, the Yamases, uh, the Santee, and in the mountains, the Cherokees, um, you know, they were not, uh, they, they were at odds with them, but they were all pretty evenly balanced in terms of military might and in terms of politics. So although they had some battles and some skirmishes, they tended to respect each other's territory. And so it's important to kind of understand the dynamics of this. And when we start talking about, you know, European contact, one of the first things to remember is that prior to the arrival of the English, there were other European explorers who did make contact with the North Carolina coast. And uh, the most well-known of these explorers was Verrazano, who actually stopped near the mouth of the Cape Fear River. He sailed up the Outer Banks, stopped in the southern part of the Outer Banks, um, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, south of uh, Cape Lookout area and up near Nags Head, just, you know, on the outside of um, Roanoke Island. So you have Roanoke Island, you have part of the Sound, and then you have um, the Outer Banks and then Nags Head. So there had been um, whites and Europeans who had visited North Carolina, who had kind of gotten an assessment of the fact that there were native people there and some sense of what those native people looked like. He did document, you know, in his writings, what the native peoples looked like that he encountered. And he noted that as you got further north, that uh, the native people seemed to get a bit darker and that the native people to the south uh, were, uh, you know, a bit, uh, you know, lighter. And we learned later that one of the reasons for that is that the Tuscaroras had a, a, a habit of uh, putting bear's oil. They ate bear and they used the oil of the bear and they would rub the bear's oil over their skin and it made them appear uh, darker uh, than, um, than they, they were. Um, Verrazano is first. And the reason why I start with Verrazano, because we know that's recorded, but it's also important to understand that before Verrazano, the Spanish, there was a brisk Native American slave trade that was begun as early as Columbus in 1492, 1494. Uh, the, the Europeans, the Spanish, when they encountered Native people, they took a number of Native people as captives and as slaves, particularly women, and they took them back to Spain and they sold them uh, as concubines uh, to Europeans. So there was a trade in slaves. The Spanish were constantly coming along the coast in Central America, South America, uh, Mexico, um, the Caribbean, and certainly the North American coast, North Carolina and other places, seizing when there was an opportunity, native people, particularly women and children, but native people, and taking them back uh, to Spain and or taking them to other parts of the Spanish Empire in, North, in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, but the first sustained involvement of the Spanish in North Carolina begins with De Soto, who in 1539 uh, marches through the western part of, 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 starts in Florida and up through Florida and South Carolina, but marches through North Carolina. 
why are these interactions important? They're important because when the Europeans come, they spread disease. So whatever was there was before contact with Europeans, in the years before the English come in the 1580s, it has been altered and it's been altered by disease. This is a wonderful, not a wonderful time, but it is a perfect time to explain to people the impact of disease when all of us are impacted today by COVID and we see what disease has done. But imagine native peoples who've never been exposed to any European diseases before and they do not have Zoom and they cannot social distance. In fact, their cultures are the complete opposite. They are very social people and they live in what are called, particularly the Tuscaroras and the Iroquois, longhouses where you have extended families all living under the same roof, grandparents, uh, parents, children, and in some cases, great grandparents. And since they have wampum belts, which I, I consider to be a form of written, like hieroglyphics, a form of written uh, history, um, they didn't have a written language the way the English and the other Europeans did. And so the stories were told, they had an oral tradition and they passed on their stories orally. And disease tends to affect, as we see it affecting today, uh, the old and the young. So the elderly who, who really held the culture and held the history and held the stories and the ways to do things were basically wiped out by disease. And they began to be impacted and affected by disease as early as 1524, but throughout the 1500s when DeSoto comes through, when Pardo comes through, and very few people realize that even as far north as uh, Virginia and what is today Jamestown, that the Spanish actually uh, established a mission there amongst the Powhatans, and they were trying to Christianize the Powhatans and convert them to Catholicism. And so there was a tremendous impact by the Spanish. We tend to ignore the Spanish and leave them out of our history, but there's a tremendous impact of the Spanish on North America, not just on South America and the areas south of South Carolina, but even uh, in North Carolina and along of the North Carolina coast. So when we talk about the impact of the, fan, of the Spanish, again, we know that the Spanish conquistadors you know, are traveling through, and I will give a preface warning here in case I have any young folks coming up as I talk about the Spanish. There are some graphic illustrations which are from the historical record about the Spanish in terms of their you know, attacks on native people. So I, I'm prefacing everybody that as we get through this little small section, you might want to you know, just be aware of the fact that these are graphic images of uh, people being harmed by the Spanish uh, during their campaigns against native people throughout uh, the Western Hemisphere. So the Spanish really involved themselves with native people south of the PD River. And what I'm trying to establish for you all is the, where the Lost Colony is gonna be located is in North Carolina proper. But along the PD River, you have native groups all along the PD, the PD Indians and other groups of Indusanti, other Indians that are along uh, the PD River. When the Spanish come into the region, they're gonna create a lot of confusion and cause a lot of conflict. And they're gonna have various native groups end up shifting alliances because of their presence. So we have certain groups like the Tutelos and the Saponis who were Siouan people and generally you would associate them with the Catabas and the Siouans to the south who will end up falling into alliance with the Iroquois and with the Tuscaroras and the Meherans and the Nataways because of the impact of the Spanish when they came through the region. 
Um, Pardo in particular established a number of forts as far north as uh, Asheville and basically uh, attempted to, to force native people to provide food for his armies as he marched through the western part of North Carolina. And on these campaigns um, through um, North Carolina and South Carolina, but particularly uh, the, the central western part of North Carolina, uh, they really destroy native villages, they attack native people, um, they kill native people, they take uh, various foodstuffs and goods, but the goal is, of course, to basically intimidate the chiefs and intimidate uh, the, the, the peoples that are there. Uh, these drawings are courtesy of, of Bartholomew, who accompanied the Spanish on their campaigns, and he witnessed their atrocities against the native peoples that were living um, in uh, the New World, and particularly in uh, the Carolinas. So it's important to understand that uh, the Spanish made a, a significant impact on the natives of North Carolina and South Carolina, but on the natives of North Carolina. And it would be an impact that would not soon be forgotten um, by the native people um, who were there. Uh, this illustration is of um, the Spanish chopping the hands and the feet off of Native Americans um, in North America. Uh, the Iroquois at the American Philosophical Society, uh, there is a, a story by a, a Tuscarora who, um, you know, discussed the handless maiden. And until I saw this illustration and began to read about the Spanish campaigns in the Carolina, uh, it did not, I thought it was a metaphor. I, I didn't realize that it was real but they talked about the handless mating, that the, the, this maiden who had no hands, this Indian girl who had no hands. And, um, but when you understand the history and you piece together both the Spanish, the French, and the English, you begin to understand that much of what is talked about uh, did happen. Um, so we have the Spanish and the Portuguese come into the New World and dominate the New World and really designate the, the Spanish do all of the Western Hemisphere except for Brazil as being their territory. So the Portuguese are in Brazil and the Spanish pretty much dominate everything else in the New World from the Caribbean through Central America, South America, and North America. And so now the coming of the English and we will now try to touch on this understanding of the lost colony. By 1584, the English will arrive in North America. They will come to the coast of North America, they will explore um, Eastern North Carolina, and they will establish a fort at Raleigh, uh, on, called Fort Raleigh on Roanoke Island. It's important to understand that uh, this is the first uh, area, uh, North Carolina is the first area that the English attempt to settle. They explored and attempt to settle it between 1584 and um, uh, to, to 18, 1587. Um, and it also is the first area that the English introduce Africans. They introduce Africans into the area in 1586, a year before they introduce whites, and 33 years before Africans are introduced into Jamestown, Virginia in 1619. Um, if you want to understand the lost colony and some of the remnant peoples who are descendants from the lost colony, you have to understand the complete history of North Carolina and these Africans that were brought and what happened to them. 
Traditionally in North Carolina history, the question isn't asked if it's even known. Most North Carolinians don't really even know that Sir Francis Drake brought over 700, a regiment, a near regiment is about a thousand um, Africans that he had picked up in the Caribbean. And I'm gonna come back to that uh, shortly. And that as a reward for their service, he released them in North Carolina. Some scholars say that well, they died in North Carolina. But again, if we know Africans, they were exposed to European diseases, and so they were pretty much immune to most European diseases. These Africans were armed with English guns and gunpowder and lead, and they would have had a military advantage over the Indians that were in uh, Eastern North Carolina because of it. So we have not concerned ourselves with what happened to these Africans, but if you wanna understand the history of mixed race people in North Carolina and understand what happened to the lost colony, you must first understand what happened to those Africans that were left one year before the lost colony uh, in 1580, uh, which was left in 1587. These are illustrations by um, Ralph Lane and John White of the native people there. And of course, the, 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 the rich fertile landscape there, the native villages, and you've seen these style villages before when the Spanish came in, Bartholomew's drawings are showing longhouses and showing basically what would be Iroquois villages. The Algonquins and the Iroquois had similar you know, villages, but you're showing their, their structure, their communities with their gardens and with their farm, you know, how they live, their religious ceremony is well documented by John White and Ralph Lane. So they had native people um, that come out of the Roanoke, Maharan, Chawan River basins into the Albemarle Sound and down to Roanoke Island. You have, again, these are the cultural people. These are, you know, basically illustrations of how they live their lives. And, um, and as I've already explained, the Tuscaroras made it clear that they shared the Outer Banks with their neighbors, the Algonquins, but because they want a particular type of seashell that is different from the seashells that the Algonquins are interested in. And so they don't have any military conflicts over going to the islands, but they consider you know, that region um, you know, to be uh, their region and to be their territory. And it's highly uh, possible and likely based on some of the records uh, that one of my uh, students have looked at, um, Tracy Ainsworth, uh, Ainsworth Tracy, um, that the Spanish mission in Virginia in 1571 and later the destruction of that mission along the James River led to the Spanish, Spanish returning to the Chesapeake and to Virginia and, and slaughtering Indians because the Indians killed the priests at the mission, burned the mission, and the Spaniards came back and they basically attacked all the Indian villages that they came to counter with. Uh, they killed the people and they took the uh, women and children out of the colony. And when they came back years later, um, the people had, had adjusted. So the Virginia Beach area, the Chesapeake area of Virginia, uh, where there were native people who had been living and up and near around the James, they, they were moved around because of these attacks by the Spanish and trying to get further away from the coast, which would have brought them into uh, contact with the Tuscaroras and the Iroquois that were south in North Carolina. So there's a lot that we don't know about uh, what was happening in that area, but that we still need to know. But it's important to look at the Chesapeake and what's happening in the Chesapeake and to also understand uh, the importance of it. One of the things that the English noted when they met with the, the Algonquin Indians who were settled in coastal North Carolina. And I like to mention this to people that even today, there are hurricanes along the North Carolina coast. 
and you live there at your own risk. And many people deal, still choose to live on the Outer Banks and live on the coast at, here in North Carolina. But we know that it's prone to hurricanes and native people knew it was prone to hurricanes. And so native people would not have preferred to live on the Outer Banks or live in the coastal areas because of those hurricanes. But, and when you come further inland uh, from Roanoke Island, uh, you know that eastern North Carolina and southeastern Virginia is swampy. You have the Great Dismal Swamp on the border between Virginia and North Carolina, and then you have the Alligator Swamp on the southern uh, half of the Albemarle Sound. So most of eastern North Carolina is almost ininhabitable in terms of, in the sense that it's mostly swampland, mosquitoes and swamps and snakes. And so uh, native people are just like people today. People want to live in areas that you know, are on high ground, that don't flood, and that they can have access to the waterways to fish and travel, but they don't want to be in areas that are high risk for storms or for just you know, natural disasters. On this map drawn by John White and Ralph Lane, we see the native nations, and I'm pointing this out to you because we're gonna see these names change. We see the Choanoke, you know, we see um, the, the Monagoks, the Monagoks are Iroquois, and the Monagoks are basically Tuscaroras, and I circled them on this map in red, and they're to the west. They are small because the English knew very little about them, but the native people uh, explained that there was a warlike band of Indians that were to the west, and of course the English had some interest in trying to, you know, learn more about them, and we will talk about that later. But they wrote them small, drew them small, even though their territory was expansive and was large, because they didn't know anything about them. But they did know the Indian nations that they had visited and that they had interacted with in the East, and so they basically document those nations. And what I have done here is I have highlighted in yellow the Indian, uh, you know, nations, groups of clans that came together to, to form these early Indian nations in eastern North Carolina, and there were roughly three or four significant nations, you know, multiple, you know, divisions of them that you might find, but significant uh, nations. Also, I highlighted on this map uh, in blue uh, the word Virginia. If you follow from, uh, you know, from the left, I'm looking at it from left to right, you see the V and then you'll see I, uh, you'll see uh, R-G-I-N-I-A, Virginia. Most people don't understand uh, that early North Carolina was Virginia. When they failed to colonize Eastern North Carolina and are driven out of North Carolina, the English go to Jamestown and Jamestown becomes Virginia. But throughout the colonial period, Eastern North Carolina was known as Old Virginia after the failed attempt to colonize it and they had to move to, uh, to the Chesapeake, this became Old Virginia. But it's known if you're looking for information about Eastern North Carolina and the native peoples that were there, you have to look under the early Virginia settlement, and that is early Virginia. Now, the other thing that's important for us to understand and know is the impact of disease and how that relates to the lost colony. And then we're going to tie back again into the Iroquois Confederacy, but disease, death, and war. Anyone who has been a student of the English in Eastern North Carolina and the early North Carolina settlements know that the English, you know, mapped the region extensively. So the Outer Banks, this map is a map of North Carolina. I didn't highlight Virginia here, but if you look to your left, uh, just past the red waterways from top down from where Virginia would be, you'll see Virginia written again. 
B-I-R-G-I-N-A, Virginia. Again, so throughout, and this is, map was done in 1597, uh, the English thought of Eastern North Carolina as Virginia. And even after they settled in Jamestown, they still thought of Eastern North Carolina as Virginia. And so it's important to understand that in these explorations that the English you know, have to map the region and understand the region. And as I just mentioned to you, you see the swampy land of the region. The region is pretty much, you know, swampy. Uh, much of it's been drained today and it's being used as farmland. But in the early colonial period and during uh, first contact, most of Eastern North Carolina was pretty much a big swamp. And everywhere that the English went, every village that they went to, they spread disease and the whole village started to die. So even the, the nations of Indians that were in Eastern North Carolina of some significant size, not as powerful as the Tuscaroras, sharing the Outer Banks with the Tuscaroras, by the time the English finished exploring North Carolina and trying to trade with and negotiate with them, they had pretty much devastated the native populations in Eastern North Carolina. These things are important if you wanna understand what happened to the lost colony, because you need to understand that by the time the English began to, were driven out of Eastern North Carolina, Eastern North Carolina was not the same and it would not be the same again after uh, first contact with the English, okay? So when the English attempted to go up the Roanoke River to the territories of the Monagocs or what were the Tuscaroras, the Tuscaroras attacked them. They would not allow them to get into their territory. And one of the things beginning as early as 1586, one of the things you learned from the colonial records about the Tuscaroras were that they were a very secretive people and that they did not uh, trust you know, the English or, or any of the other Europeans. And they did not initially allow them into their territory the way the um, Algonquins did along the coast and in Virginia when we talk about the Powhatan Confederacy. That is very important because they, don't, they do not share their strategies, they do not share their thoughts, they do not share information with the Europeans or even um, with some of their Indian neighbors, um, but they do communicate with and share and trade with um, their uh, kinsmen, the five nations to the north. And uh, so it's important to understand that. If we talk about the lost colony, I, I figured I'd take the opportunity that in Bertie County today, uh, people have found what they believe to be site X, uh, where they're in the process of excavating uh, the area and they find Elizabethan artifacts along with native um, you know, artifacts in this, uh, in this you know, area that's being excavated. And so this tends to you know, support this, you know, this, this story by the Tuscaroras you know, about you know, their involvement with the destruction of the lost colony and, uh, and where their territories are. And while we're on this map, I'll take the opportunity to say this too. So you say, well, how, how is it that we don't know anything about these things? How is it that this story is not told or it gets lost? Um, it's important to understand that during the Tuscarora War, which I will touch on you know, a little later, the Tuscarora nation is going to be shattered you know, um, during that war with the colonists in North Carolina, the nation's gonna be broken, it's gonna be shattered. And what I always compare it to is like taking a plate or taking a mirror and you drop it on the floor or glass, you shatter it on the floor and shards go everywhere. And you sweep up what you think are the shards and you put them in the garbage, but then you may be walking a week later, two weeks later and you step on a shard of glass. 
you know, that was from that glass that you shattered or from that mirror you shattered. Um, the Tuscaroras were shattered and scattered. I call it the Tuscarora diaspora. Uh, they stood against the expansion of the English in North Carolina, but when they lost the Tuscarora War, their stories, their legends went with them, and they were basically taken to the Northeast and taken to the uh, lands of the Iroquois Confederacy. And so the remnants that were left in North Carolina were enslaved on plantations or they were living in the swamps of Eastern and Southeastern North Carolina. And those stories didn't uh, get, uh, were not told because it was not in the interest of those who remained in North Carolina to share that heritage and share those stories because um, it would put their families in jeopardy. And so many of those Tuscaroras, you know, ended up trying to blend in to the population. Uh, during that particular time period. So again, I'm trying to lay a narrative and trying to explain uh, how the connection between, I think I've done that between the Iroquois Confederacy and the Tuscarora. I've tried to explain what's happening in Eastern North Carolina and Southeastern Virginia and how it impacts the native peoples there. And now we're gonna talk about um, the Africans that were brought in 1586. Um, really was a regiment that Drake had basically put together um, to attack Spanish ships and Spanish islands in the Caribbean. This is the historic map of that, uh, that voyage and of that, that regiment you know, that he produced. A typical regiment has about a thousand men and he lost some of the men, uh, but uh, you know, he, when he got to North Carolina, he still had somewhere between six and 700 um, Africans um, and West Indians and Moors uh, that he had uh, basically picked up as he attacked islands. Um, so Francis Drake took a fleet of ships from England to attack the Spanish in the Caribbean. You can see in the center of the screen that fleet of ships it has, it's in the middle of the Atlantic crossing over. It shows the different places that they stopped and they raided uh, in the Caribbean and on the tip of South America and then up through and around uh, uh, Cuba and eventually up the coast of Florida. Um, wherever he went and wherever he attacked, he freed slaves and he promised the slaves their freedom if they fought for England. And so he took those slaves with him up to North Carolina. And the last stop, of course, was Fort St. Augustine's in Florida. After attacking there, he moves up to North Carolina and he will basically drop off those slaves as he had promised at Roanoke Island. Um, and he will pick up some of the early explorers that were left in Roanoke Island. When he leaves Roanoke Island, he leaves uh, over 600 Africans uh, and other Maroon soldiers on Roanoke Island. And as I said before, 33 years before the arrival of Africans to Jamestown. I don't have a problem with the discussion in Jamestown and indentured servitude and the beginnings of slavery and the presence of African people and all the work that has been done uh, to commemorate that. But I do believe that it's important that we understand that here in North Carolina, our history and heritage runs deeper and that most of the Africans, these 600 Africans that were left in Eastern North Carolina, they basically were free people and they operate as free people in the swamps of Eastern North Carolina from the time that they are dropped off um, really right on through in, into the colonial period. In fact, there are descendants still, and we'll talk about the Machapangos and the Bear River and the Matamesquite people, there are still descendants of these people still in Hyde County and in parts of um, Eastern North Carolina, uh, south of the Albemarle Sound. In this uh, group, we have Muslims, we have Moors, we have West Africans, we have some Jews, and we even have some Native Americans who are from the Spanish islands 
in the Spanish Caribbean. Uh, all of the Caribbean belonged to the Spanish. Uh, we didn't have, you know, the French-speaking islands and the English-speaking islands and the Dutch-speaking islands. They all belonged to the Spanish, or the Spanish had control of all of them. And then uh, we'll see the Europeans fight with the Spanish for control of certain islands, and that's when we'll get islands like Jamaica or Barbados, or we'll get like, uh, you know, uh, Aruba, the Dutch Antilles, because these different nations will fight with the Spanish and take islands from the Spanish and use those islands as sugar islands to produce uh, sugar. But uh, this, these raids by Drake amassed an army, a diverse army of what were considered Africans and what were been considered undesirables uh, in the Spanish, uh, you know, in terms of fighting against the Spanish because these people had been enslaved and they readily joined uh, with the Spanish. Um, to fight against uh, the, the join with the English to fight against the Spanish during the colonial period. Um, this map is important because I've showed you an earlier map of Eastern North Carolina. And in that earlier map of Eastern North Carolina, I showed you the native nations that were there. This is a later representation just prior to the Tuscarora War, where you have the upper Tuscaroras and the lower Tuscaroras, and then you have these other groups of Indians, the Choanokes and the Machapungas, the Pamlico, the Bear River Indians. The Machapungas in particular, who dominate you know, um, what is Hyde County in and around the Alligator Swamp and the Alligator River, the Machapungas basically were black Indians. They did not exist when the English came in 1584, 85 and map the region. By the start of the Tuscarora War in 1711, you have the Machapungas and the Matamesquite and the Bear River, all these what we consider black Indians in eastern North Carolina uh, that did not exist before. Uh, the other interesting thing about the Machapungas is that many of the Machapungas, and I've met with some of their descendants today, one, you know, the son of one of the last chiefs of the Machapunga, one of the things that they had genetically is they had six fingers. Many of them had six fingers, and I'm going to connect that later when we talk about the Tuscaroras and these people with Melungeons in the mountains who sometimes have claimed to have six fingers. The other thing with Tuscaroras and these coastal Indians, they all end up blending together and coming into one confederation, is that the Tuscaroras had blue, green, and gray eyes from absorbing the white women from the Roanoke Island. There were huge numbers of them all throughout the Tuscarora Nation with blue, green, and gray eyes, and it became known as the Tuscarora Eye and later became known as the evil eye after their defeat during the Tuscarora War because many of the Tuscaroras uh, ended up uh, blaming the Tuscaroras who were mixed with whites for the loss of the war. And contrary to what we see happening a lot with Native people today, in the colonial period and early antebellum, but colonial period after the Tuscarora War, many of the Tuscaroras you know, uh, did not particularly care for the English. And so Tuscaroras who had European characteristics, who had blue eyes, green eyes, gray eyes, sometimes they had red or auburn hair. Um, these people were often, you know, rejected by um, the rest of the Tuscaroras. And this led to a, a fracturing of the nation, you know, because the war itself was devastating and it caused, you know, the loss of Eastern North Carolina to the English. And then the fact that they began to, you know, have disagreements or conflicts amongst themselves about those Tuscaroras who were of different um, colors and you know, had different colored eyes, it only led, accelerated the breakup of the Tuscarora Nation and the scattering of the Tuscarora people throughout North Carolina and throughout the Eastern US really um, uh, following the Tuscarora War. So uh, I'm gonna pause here uh, and get ready to ask questions. 
but uh, I think that it's important, you know, for people to kind of understand, if you want to know what happened with the Lost Colony, you got to understand what happened to Drake's 700. You got to understand the native people that existed in the region prior to the arrival of these people, and then what developed afterwards. Because once the whites push, they push from east to west, once they defeat a nation of Indians, they either enslave them, they exterminate them, and they certainly take their lands and they push them west. And so no nations come back. If you don't come back into you know, English settlement and start a nation again, you are pushed off of your land and then you basically are gonna become enslaved or you're gonna become dispossessed. You can live in the swamps, which we see happening with a lot of these remnant peoples, but um, you, you, otherwise you, you cannot live well. And then the Tuscaroras as a closeout, the Tuscaroras leave Eastern North Carolina after the war, they relocate to New York, and in 1722, as I said before, they become the sixth nation of the Iroquois Confederacy, the most powerful Indian Confederacy in the history of North America, and the uh, great law really is the fun, uh, foundation of our U.S. Constitution, and we'll talk, we could talk about that as well in terms of there being a true democracy. They had a true democracy. Um, so I'll stop there, and I guess it's time we can have time for some questions. Yeah, so thank you so much. Um, so we do have a few questions. The first one is from Rebecca Fetcher. She asks, do you have any thoughts on the Eno, Wayanoke, Shakori peoples that are known to have interacted with and lived with the Tuscarora? They have stories and reports coming from Jamestown about these peoples possibly holding lost colony captives. It, it, exactly. Uh, Saponi people, as I mentioned before, and that's one of the reasons, and you know, these are, I'm putting these, these thoughts together, right? One of the reasons I showed the um, PD Rivers to show that some of the Siouan peoples, you know, end up, you know, being, you know, disrupted by the Spanish and then creating alliances with the Tuscaroras. Um, there are still Saponi people here. There are Tutelos that live with uh, the Six Nations on their reservations. Yes, as traditional native areas are taken by whites and native peoples are decimated by disease and war, native people started to come together and they started to intermarry with one another. They already had friendships and trading, you know, uh, trading trade routes and trading and military alliances even before that. But as they are shattered and they are moved from their ancestral areas, they further seek out people like themselves. And we know genetically, for example, really all the peoples in Eastern North Carolina and Southeastern Virginia were genetically the same because they would raid each other's villages from time to time and they would take each other's women and children and they would intermarry with each other. So genetically, they were all about the same. And so, um, yes, uh, to, your, to answer your question, uh, yes, the Tuscaroras controlled some of the most fertile land in North Carolina and they had control of some of the uh, most lucrative trade routes. Any native peoples to the West, you know, who wanted to trade in any of the European goods, guns, axes, gunpowder, lead, they had to trade through the Tuscaroras. So the Tuscaroras knew of quite a few nations and some of them they were very friendly with. Because as a footnote now, I'll be quiet to get another question, but uh, when they left North Carolina, they also intermarried with the Lenape people, which we, the, the talk that's going to be next week, uh, Ramapo Mountain people or Lenape Delaware people who ended up in um, Ohio, Shawnees, uh, Nanakokes, uh, all of these different Northeastern Indians, not to mention, of course, you know, the, the five nations, Mohawks, Senecas, Onondagas, Oneidas, Cayugas, 
they intermarry with all of these northeastern Indians. And so you'll find remnants of them scattered all throughout the Ohio Valley, Appalachia, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and even over into um, Oklahoma. If you're in southern West Virginia, anybody who knows Appalachia, you've heard of Logan County, West Virginia, big coal area, and you've heard of Mohawk County, which is not far away. Again, the name Logan, Chief Logan was a Seneca chief, and he was, uh, you know, he was known in that area uh, during the colonial period. So there we have, you know, this is all over Appalachia. If you know what you're looking for, you'll see um, that there's still the impact and remnants uh, coming back east again to your question. Yes, these native nations had good relationships and they did support each other. Thank you. So our next question is from August and Whitmire. Uh, they asked, what was the Dutch relationship with the Native Americans in New York, Delaware, and Pennsylvania? Okay, another very good question. Uh, the Dutch actually established the first friendship with the Five Nations. Um, and when the Dutch came to settle New York or explore the Hudson River Valley, uh, one of the things the Five Nations or the Mohawks and the Five Nations asked for were guns. And the reason they asked for guns were because the French had introduced guns to their enemies, the Hurons. Even though they were Iroquois, they were enemies of the Hurons. And the Hurons, in a battle at Lake Champlain, had killed one of their uh, one of their major chiefs and several of their people. So the Dutch, you know, they call it the Covenant Chain. Uh, they established the first major um, treaty with the Five Nations or the Iroquois Confederacy. It's the Dutch, and that treaty is moved from the Dutch to the English after the English defeat the Dutch and take control of the Dutch colonies in North America, including, of course, New York, the city of New York. And then at that point, the Iroquois transfer the covenant chain, transfer the treaty from the Dutch to the English. And it is the, the chain, of course, is unbreakable, right? And you'll hear the Iroquois say this all the time, their relationship with their kinsmen to the South, uh, Tuscaroras, Meharans, and Nottaways, that they are like a chain, they are unbreakable and that remains consistent. But the Dutch were the ones who initiate that language when they established their treaty with the Iroquois and armed them with guns, which they used to really create a major empire in uh, the Northeast. So our next question is from Awindala Grantham. Um, and they ask, thank you, well, they first say, thank you for your presentation. Um, and then the question, there's two. What were the Tuscarora's cultural attitudes towards women? And did they change their attitudes toward women and gender after interacting with Europeans? Another excellent question. Um, the Iroquois valued women. Uh, women select the chiefs. And this is one of the things you have to understand. Um, the Iroquois Confederacy and Iroquoian communities are democracies. They have consensus, they build consensus before they act, before they do anything. There has to be consensus throughout the nation. And building that consensus or selecting the leaders to execute whatever it is that you know, the nation wants done, uh, the clan mothers, the women, come together and they elect the chiefs. They elect you know, a, a war chief, they elect a, a communal chief to speak on behalf of the nation. So the women you know, had an extraordinary place. They uh, elected the chiefs. They actually controlled the land. Um, you, know, we, you know, the concept of land ownership like Europeans was not the case, but they controlled the land because they did most of the farming. They, they produced gardens and they grew what we call the three sisters, corn, beans, and squash. So they had, you know, they had extraordinary influence in all of the uh, Six Nations. Um, and not to, again to, to, to belabor, but to show an example of, of the women and the nations in terms of raising chiefs. Um, the Iroquois had great 
conflicts with the French. And, and one of the, the pieces, the, the French, you know, call for a peace, and they all brought all the chiefs together to meet with the French to decide the peace. During this meeting, uh, all of the chiefs were taken and sold into slavery and shipped to the Caribbean, to the French islands in the Caribbean and sold into slavery. And um, the clan mothers raised up new chiefs. They appointed new chiefs and the Confederacy continued to operate. This would have been in the 1600s. So it's important to understand that you know, the women had an extraordinary influence. Now, in terms of today, I would say they, they still have a, a, an extraordinary influence. I know the Tuscarora Nation of New York, they still have the traditional ancestral clan mothers. You know, in other words, the bloodline is through the women. You are a Tuscarora because your mother was a Tuscarora, your grandmother, your great-grandmother, your great-great-grandmother. The bloodline runs through the women. You are the nation or a member of that nation because of your mother. And I know that the Tuscarora Nation in New York, they still have um, the women who are descendant from the original women who founded the Tuscarora Nation, who create, who come out of the, the original Iroquois people and founded the Tuscarora Nation. So yes, women still have an extraordinarily um, important role in uh, the Tuscarora Nation, and I would still say amongst the Iroquois people uh, even today. I think we only have time for a few more questions. Um, so let's, this one's from Marie Smith, and she asks, where exactly were the, the Machapaga people located in North Carolina? Uh, I, I think they're meaning the Machapungas, right? I, I believe so. <laughs> yeah. So Machapungas, uh, the Machapungas were in uh, kind of south of Hyde County. If you know North Carolina and you know Eastern North Carolina, if you were to take um, Highway 64 um, down through Eastern North Carolina, it takes you across to Roanoke Island and then out to Nags Head to the Outer Banks. And so when you're driving that way, if south of there uh, is um, Hyde County, and you know, that's where the Machapunga people were. And it's really, it, it was swampland during the colonial period, and pretty much almost all of the colonial period. It wasn't until you know, more recently that they began to drain that area. And now you see a lot of large farms out there where they're farming peanuts or corn or whatever, but that's, they have pumps that are pumping the water out of the land, constantly pumping the water out of the land. But that whole area there was really swamp, but that is their home area. And like I said, again, the Machapungas did not exist you know, prior to uh, the release of these Africans in that region, and it's near what we call the Alligator Swamp and the Alligator River, uh, they didn't exist until after those Africans were released. And again, that characteristic of that six fingers, I mean, I, again, Tuscaroras and the Machapungas in the Mary, and um, you, you'll find some Tuscaroras that have that characteristic as well, um, along with, you know, the, those eyes, which we call the Tuscarora eye. This next question is from Tanya Blair. She asks, were the first 600 Africans brought in by Drake, baptized, or Christians? Now, that's one of the things that I've tried to do over the years is get more students interested in colonial history. Particularly, I do African-American history, so I try to get students interested in early African-American history. It's great that we have people interested in civil rights. It's great that we have people interested in antebellum slavery. But they need to know that there was 200 years of African, Indian, you know, European in involvement and interaction uh, prior to, to this. As far as we are aware of, no, they were not Christians, the short answer. In fact, many of, some of them were Moors and most Moors are Muslims and they were also Muslims. And we know there were a few Jews, you know. So they were not as, a, a Christian in the sense that Jews are Christian, but most of them were Muslims and Moors and even the Moors were basically Islamic. 
So many of these early people uh, would not have been Christians and they would not have been with the English long enough to really become Christians because the English weren't interested in, you know, trying to convert them or anything. They needed an army, you know, and they were trying to attack the Spanish. And as a footnote to these people and what they did, that raid by Drake amassed so much wealth, so much money, so much gold and silver that when he got back to England, they used that money to build the English fleet which became the most powerful Navy in the history of the world. And then as they finally colonized North Carolina, even Eastern North Carolina, the forest of Eastern North Carolina, the pine forest of Eastern North Carolina were cut to build that British Navy. And the pitch and resin was used to, you know, to patch the ships. And basically from Eastern North Carolina, from the service of their black soldiers, uh, the English built the most powerful Navy in the history of the world. And as they would say, the sun would never set on the British empire until the rise of the Nazis during World War II. All right, so our last question is from Patrick Williams. And he asks, is there any truth to the Lumbee or Kahari being descended from the lost colony? I, again, what I would say, and I, I saw an interesting piece um, really in prep, uh, preparing for this, where there is questions, if you know the Lumbees, you know that some of their major heroes, um, Henry Barry Lowry, um, he was a Tuscarora. And as I've already explained, the Tuscaroras absorbed the lost colony, so a great many of the Tuscaroras were mixed, you know, they were triracial, Indian, black, and white, and um, were descendants of the lost colony. So there are a great many Lumbees, you know, who are actually Tuscaroras. And so that's just something to, to know and to remember. So I, I wouldn't say that they're not. I mean, I don't know the history as well, but I do know, remember, that there was not a nation of Indians called Lumbee. I've shown you all the Indians in Eastern North Carolina and I have all the Indians in North Carolina. There was never a nation of Indians called Lumbee. Lumbee was a name that they gave themselves to the state of North Carolina to be recognized as Indian people. So they would, they would have to be descendants of some of the Indians that were native to North Carolina and or to South Carolina. So I would not say that they would, I, I wouldn't have a, you know, I would not say that they're not. I mean, I don't know the families and other people, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that not. If they, if they feel that they are connected to the lost colony, uh, the question is, though, what are their nation? Because um, uh, I saw a piece about Croatan and that it was about uh, Croatan Village, which was a Tuscarora village. And so it's just, this is the kind of work that needs to be done. There's still more work that needs to be done to fully help people understand the native peoples and the relationship between native peoples and African people in Eastern North Carolina, because there's still a quite uh, a large number of Native Americans and mixed people uh, in Eastern North Carolina. There's always work to be done. Well, Arm, thank you so much for joining us and thank you all for joining us tonight. Um, just a reminder, this presentation is recorded and it will go out via email to all of you. So in the case that you missed anything, um, you can always go back and watch it that way. Also, Arwen has provided us with resources and links for you all to, draw, to see. So those will also be embedded in the email. Um, again, thank you for attending. And you can also listen to this presentation at, on our Talking in the Library podcast. And I'll also like to invite you all to join us again next week for our next fireside chat, which is William Penn's letter to the King of Lenape, a choral work with Jeff Thomas. He's a Philadelphia composer and producer at Stride 109 Studio. So to register for the next chat, visit www.librarycompany.org/firesidechat, and we hope you all can join us again. So thank you for attending, Arwen. Thank you again. Thank and you. You all have a wonderful night.